0: You know, Jesus left us with a promise before he ascended into heaven. He said, I will go and I will prepare a place for you. And I will come again. And I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Jesus made this promise almost 2,000 years ago. And we're still here. Stuck in between two worlds. The one we presently live in here on earth and the one we aspire to, the one we look to, the one we wait for, the one that we've been promised that Christ has gone and prepared for us. So with our feet firmly planted in one and our eyes always looking upward to the other, we wait, we remain, we hope and we stay. Whenever we find ourselves waiting, we often ask two questions. When is the waiting going to be over? And what do we do in the meantime? What do we do while we wait? Well, that's what 1 Thessalonians is all about. The what and the when. The life and the times. The here and the now. The the, the, the now and then. Just everything. The present Christian life. In the last times. Acts seventeen gives us the account of Paul's first encounter with the Thessalonians. Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy had traveled to Thessalonica on their second on Paul's second missionary journey. And after being there only a few but very fruitful weeks, rioting broke out by those who were opposed to the gospel. And it forced Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy to flee before the church in Thessalonica could be totally established. Their work there wasn't done, but they had to leave. Fearing that this persecution would result in the believers falling back into their old idolatrous practices, Paul ends up sending Timothy to check up on them, to encourage them, to exhort them in the faith. A short time later then, Timothy returned to Paul and gave this very positive report that the church is, is fruitful. And excitedly, Paul responds with this letter, one of his first, to encourage and equip the church and also to answer a few questions that they had. The main one being, when will Christ come again? So 1 Thessalonians is Paul's attempt to answer those questions. When is it going to happen? And what do we do in the meantime? That's what it's all about. In chapter 1, Paul begins by confirming that through the power of the gospel, the Thessalonians have actually become a church. He wants to assure them that though, they had, though he had to leave before he could completely finish his work of establishing them, that their lives actually give testament to the fact that God, through the power of his gospel, is at work building the foundation for this fledgling congregation. So he provides them with evidence to prove that they have indeed become a church. And what I found that as I was looking, as I was unpacking 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, that Paul actually kind of provides us with a definition of the church, which I think would be helpful. The definition that I came up with from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 is that the church is a redemptive community of gospel-centered people. Now, If you've been at Redeemer for a while, that ought to sound familiar to you. It sounds a lot like our mission statement. Our mission statement at Redeemer Church is to build redemptive communities of gospel-centered people. That's why we're here. We're about making, building, planting churches. Redemptive communities filled with people who love and cherish and focus and, and direct their lives by the gospel. So over the next two weeks, as we examine 1 Thessalonians 1, we're not only going to be able to expound upon Paul's definition of what the church is, but we're also going to be able to unpack a little bit more of the church, our church's, Redeemer Church's vision statement as we look at, at this text. So with that, let's go ahead and today we're going to focus on verses 1 through 3. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and the steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing that Paul tells us, About the church is that it is a redemptive community that lives together in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 1, Paul again writes, To the church of the Thessalonians who are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This church exists both in Thessalonica and in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you realize that you live in a dual reality? that you have dual citizenship? You live in two worlds. We have the present physical world and the present spiritual world. The physical world is evident enough, but we don't often realize that in a mysterious way, through the work of the Spirit, we live in a spiritual reality as well. Right here and right now. That's because all who have received redemption through Christ Jesus do not experience just a change in standing before God, like a relational change, that we go from death to life, from being enemies of God to being children of God. But we also experience a change in standing before God in terms of our spiritual presence. When you come to Christ, your present physical identity does not change but in a strange way, the position of your soul changes. It's connected to. It's rooted in Christ, who is in heaven. All believers presently live in two worlds. If you flip, keep your finger in First in Thessalonians and flip over to Ephesians chapter 2. This passage describes well this present reality of redemption. Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 1 through 6. Paul says here to the Ephesians, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That is our state before we come to Christ. That's the state of all people. Captive to the prince of the power of the air. But here's this relational change marked out so well in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So there's our change in standing relationally before God. We went from being His enemies to being His children. We went from death to life. And it's because of God's grace. But look at verse 6. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. By his grace, God has brought believers from being dead in their sins to being alive together with Christ. With Christ. And not only has he made them alive, but he has already raised them with Christ. Past tense. And he has already seated them with Christ in the heavenly places. Past tense. All those who have been redeemed by Christ not only identify themselves with Christ by professing faith in Him, but they realize that they presently live in and with Christ. Now, they realize that their being made alive together with Christ means that they currently share both in His death and (coughs) resurrection and His current position in heaven. They live in and with Christ right now, not just when they die. Heaven is not just some future home, it is a present home. Because Christ dwells with them, always connecting them with their spiritual reality. I struggled with how to illustrate this, so that you might understand. And the best I could come up with, again, is Lord of the Rings. I know I shared it last week, but you know the scene where Frodo... Um, The first time he puts on that ring, you know, he's he's there at the end of the prancing pony, you know, and he puts it on and suddenly he sees something very different. You know, he's still standing in Middle Earth, but his perception of the world around him has drastically changed. I mean, he could see the Nazgul. He could see the eye of Sauron, you know, there he was planted in Middle Earth, but he could see something very different, something different at work. And that's a, that's a poor illustration, but this is the best that I could come up with. You know, some differences though. When Instead of putting on a ring, we have the Holy Spirit that lives within us. Instead of disappearing when we put on the ring, we remain. People still see us. And instead of seeing the Nazgul or, or the eye of, of Sauron, we figuratively set our minds on the victorious, risen, Jesus Christ, who remains seated in heaven. And it grips our hearts. It grips our affections. It grips our desires. And it changes everything. Maybe another way to uh, illustrate it, uh, you you might recall that song by Tony Bennett, I Left My Heart in San Francisco. Well, instead of singing, I Left My Heart in San Francisco, you say, my heart is in heaven with Christ. Christ. My affections, my desires, my hopes, my dreams, everything is with Christ in heaven. It's as good as I got. Sorry. <laughs> um, really, this, this present spiritual reality, this vertical reality that we share in Christ, is, is a heavenward orientation. And it's not a one day. It's not in the future. It is a present reality. It is here and now. That is my present affection, my present hope, my present reality. And so I hope I don't sound too metaphysical or too, too confusing when I, when I say all that. I'm, I'm trying to, to make something clear here. The believers live in two worlds. Being united with Christ doesn't mean that you have, just that you have been redeemed by Him, that that relational standing that you had with God has changed. It's not just as though uh, that, that your allegiances have changed, that you are now identify yourself as a Christian. It goes beyond that. To live in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ points to this vertical spiritual reality that we live in, that we live with Christ now. You're physically here in Champagne, but you are also present with Christ through the Holy Spirit that dwells within you. Your heart, your affections are for Christ who is in heaven. And this reality of redemption ought to change the way we view our lives in this present world. Frodo could not be the same when he had that ring on. It was evident. The pressing danger that was all around him. And so it is with Christ, only positively we realize that this is not our home. And though we are here, though we are working now, though we labor to be a means of redemption to the world around us, this is not our home. Our home is right now with Christ. And we do that because we know that He is in us. And we are in Him. And we belong him, That hope of heaven is not a future expectation. It is a present spiritual reality. Though not fully revealed to us. But it's there for all who are trusting in Christ. And so living in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ changes the way we view this present physical life. You see, in addition to this vertical reality of our present redemption, there's also this horizontal reality. I mean, Paul writes to the church of the Thessalonians. Now, notice he doesn't write to believers who are in Thessalonica. He writes to the church, the assembly, the community of all those who have been redeemed by, who are identified in, who are living in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. To live in Christ is to live in community. There's no other way. God doesn't call us to be autonomous, Renegade, Lone Ranger Christians. To be called to Christ is to be called also to His bride. To live in Christ is to live in community. And it was unheard of in that day to even be identified as a Christian and not to be in the church. And that's not just a cultural thing. That's meant to be applied throughout the generations. If we are going to live in Christ, we need to live in community with one another. We will see as we continue to examine 1 Thessalonians that our living in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ necessitates our identification with and need for the church. We're just going to do a little survey really quick. In chapter 3, verse 2, Paul tells us that he sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to establish and exhort them in their faith. The body of believers actually need leaders to build them up in their faith. Skip on down, chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. God prays for the church of the Thessalonians that they might be directed to one another so that God might give them increase and that their love might abound for one another. Get this, so that, purpose statement, God might establish their hearts blameless in holiness before God the Father, in our Lord Jesus Christ. God uses believers and their love for one another as a means of making them holy. This is unbelievable that God would use sinners like you and me in messy, complicated relationships with one another for the purpose of making us blameless in Christ. I don't know why God does that, but He does. We need one another if we're going to get there. Chapter 4, verse 9. Paul affirms to them that they have been taught by God to love one another. Chapter 4, verse 18. They are to comfort one another with Paul's words. Chapter 5, verse 11. Paul says to encourage one another and build one another up just as they are doing as a means God has put in place so that they might obtain salvation. God has structured it so that the church encourages one another and builds one another up for the ultimate purpose of our full and final salvation being revealed to us. He uses us as means to proclaim the gospel truth to one another so that we might obtain salvation. We need community. We need to live in community if we're to live in Christ. So in addition to that vertical reality of living with God, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, Christians also live in a horizontal reality in this present world. But we're intended to do it together in community. If we are to continue to live in Christ in this present world, we need one another. We need community. You know, here at Redeemer, we absolutely believe in this. That's why we don't just have Sunday morning worship gatherings. We've tried to develop a a model for ministry that is simple, that is reproducible, and that is communal, in a sense. Not in the... Don't hear the wrong thing when I say communal, right? We're not going to go buy a farm and live out there and grow our own stuff and, you know, all that weird stuff. But... We want to to have opportunities to daily meet together, to encourage one another, to exhort one another every day as long as it is called today so that none of us may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so we have community groups that meet in different homes throughout the week so that you can come and study Scripture and pray together and have fellowship and grow and have accountability with one another. And we have another level of life transformation groups which are accountability groups. Groups of two to four same-sex people that meet together for intense discipleship to work on areas of our lives. It's specific to what our needs are, where we're applying the gospel to one another's lives so that we might grow in our faith, so that we might have community, so that we might be presented mature in Christ. That's, that's what we labor for. And this is still just Unbelievable. When I look at my life and my sin, that God in His wisdom, in His goodness, in His kindness towards me, would use me to speak into another person's life the perfect, infallible truth of God's Word so that that brother or sister might come to a stronger relationship in Christ so that they might actually grow to Christ-likeness. This is unbelievable. I mean, this is amazing. This is grace at work. I'm delighted to be a part of it. I'm delighted to be a part of it with you. And I hope that you might see the wonder and the grace that is offered to you as well. It's not about getting to a state of perfection. It's about working towards Christ-likeness together. Which is why we need community. So we live in two worlds. This vertical and this horizontal, living in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, living together as a redemptive community, as a church. And so all those who are living in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ are willing to live together as a redemptive community, because second, this redemptive community is established by God. Look again at verse 2. Paul begins the body of his letter by saying, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Paul begins first thing before he does anything else by telling them of how grateful he is to God for them. He's not trying to sound pious. He's not trying to look holy in their eyes. Paul truly and deep, is truly and deeply grateful to God for the Thessalonians, because he realizes that God is the source of their redemption. The reason why they have remained, they have persevered in the faith, is not because he's a winsome preacher. It's not because he's this great shepherd of the people. Paul understands that it has nothing to do with his abilities, with his talents, with his giftings. It has nothing to do with him at all, and everything to do with what God has done. Through the work and power of the gospel. As he says in Romans chapter 1, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. And so he prays to God. He thanks them. Because of the work that God has done through the gospel in their lives. They are redeemed. They are identified with Christ. Because of what God has done. Look down at verse 4. In verse 4, Paul calls them chosen and beloved. And that, <clears throat> that says something. It says that before you ever looked at God, while you were still a rebel, God loved you and He chose you. He took His gospel. He took His power and He applied it to you. This is God's work of redemption in your life. Living in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ as a church is a result of God's work, because God chose them. If you flip on down to chapter 3, verses 12-13, uh, Paul prays that God would make them increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that Christ may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before God. Paul recognizes here that God is the one who ultimately increases our faith and our love for one another. And it is Christ who establishes our hearts in holiness. So he uses us in this strange way, but ultimately it is God who provides that growth. Flip on over to chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. Paul says that the God of peace himself will sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Paul is confident here that our faithful God will sanctify believers completely. That's God's work. Redemption is God's work. It's God's plan. It's God's will. And he's going to do it. But God is also the source of our community. The reason why the church exists is because God has established it. Not as an institution, not as a building, but, by, but as a group of people who acknowledge that they live in God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who identify themselves. Their allegiances are towards Christ. They recognize their true state, that they live in the world, but yet they live in Christ. And so they gather together in community because God is the one who set that up. They share in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. They covenant together in hope. Um, In the New Testament, ten times the church is referred to as the church of God, meaning that it belongs to God, that it was established by Him. It's called the church of Christ because it was purchased by Christ's blood. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 28, Paul says that God Himself was the one who appointed apostles, prophets, and teachers to His church. I mean, look at the biblical imagery. How is the church described? It's described as the people of God, the children or the family of God. It's the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit. All of those of one form of the Trinity or another. Describes how God is the one who established it. How it belongs to Him. This is His doing. His work. And, at the risk of really disappointing my Greek professors, I can see Tom Schreiner and Brian Vickers shaking their heads now as I say this, because I can potentially commit a word study fallacy here. The word for church is ekklesia. It's a compound word. Ek, which means out or from, and klesia, which means the called ones. So the church are the called out ones, right? That's what it means. But called out by who? Called out by God, right? So the church is a community of the redeemed, believers who have banded together as they live in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, an assembly of those who have been loved and chosen and established by God. So third, the church is a redemptive community, which is characterized by faith, love, and hope. These are the things that are to identify us. Look again at verse 3. Paul says, Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. John Calvin says this triad of faith, hope, and love is a brief definition of true Christianity. It is safe to assume that the whole of Christianity consists in these three things because these are the effects of true redemption. When God saves us, when He loves us, when He chooses us and imparts His grace to us, He does it for a reason. Not so that we would continue in the same manner of life with just a declarative change. He means it to transform our lives, both inwardly and outwardly. Inwardly, we go from believing the wrong things to having faith in Jesus Christ. Inwardly, we go from loving ourselves to loving God and what He has done for us in Jesus Inwardly, we go from living without hope to having an indestructible hope that the return of Christ will bring all that God has promised. These are inward changes wrought within the heart, within all those who have truly received redemption through Christ. But these inward changes produce outward results. They, They don't just bottle up within you. They overflow. True faith produces a desire to share it with others. True love is not emotionalism. It's not sentimentality. But a commitment to act for the glory of God and the good of others. Regardless of their response. Regardless of their reception. Regardless of their reciprocity. Regardless of their retaliation. True love is self-sacrificing. And true hope imparts hope to others, regardless of our present circumstances. Because we recognize that that despite our afflictions, despite our hardships, despite whatever this life may bring, that we have waiting for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. As we looked at last week, we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who are being guarded by God's power through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God, by His grace, gives us faith, hope, and love, not just so that we might be redeemed, but so that we might be redemptive. We're not just those who have been redeemed, but we're meant to focus outward. God uses us as a means of redemption, as a means of reconciling this world to Himself. John Stott, in his commentary on this verse, makes two keen observations. He recognizes that faith, hope, and love are both outgoing, directed outward, and not inward, and that they are productive. They're outward, and they're productive. I mean, Paul says... That our faith works, that our love labors, that our hope remains steadfast and enduring. The idea conveyed here is of intentional sacrifice that is fatiguing, that requires exertion. It's hard, it's strenuous, it's exhausting. Faith, hope, and love are difficult, but we do them. Our mission then as believers, as members of Redeemer Church, is to build redemptive communities. And this requires committed labor. It requires dedicated sweat. It requires intentional service. It doesn't just happen. God uses us to do His work as a means of fulfilling His purposes. But we have to resolve ourselves to labor in those purposes. Faith, hope, and love, according to Paul, requires deliberate, hard work. And what do we work for? We work to be redemptive, to be a means of God's unfolding redemption. And we do this in three ways. First, in order to be redemptive, We need to strive to make sure as much as humanly possible that our members of Redeemer Church are actually redeemed. We can't have true community if we're trying to have community among those who are believers and unbelievers. It just can't happen. And so as much as possible, we're going to teach, we're going to evaluate, we're going to minister in such a way that we might be rightly and carefully assured that the faith that dwells within us is true. Second, we want to be redemptive in that we work towards redemption. Primarily through the proclamation of the gospel. God has entrusted us with His gospel, to be heralds, to be proclaimers, to be ambassadors of His word. And so we want to go out and share this blessing with other people so that they might have what we have also. And then the third, we're redemptive in that we work towards restoration or redemption of creation. Okay? We do this through serving in the community to promote Peace and to better the world around us, though, God, though it will be destroyed one day, we are to be agents of peace, and we do this because we recognize that God is is reconciling all things into Himself. For example, in Colossians one, verses nineteen through twenty, for in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. Making peace by the blood of his cross. Through the blood of Christ, heaven and earth will be restored to God. And that's part of God's purpose for the church. And we want to be about what God's doing. So we are going to seek to promote peace as much as possible in our culture. And we do this as we, in our work of faith, in our labor of love, and in our steadfastness of hope so that we might truly be the redemptive, a redemptive community, a redeemed community and a means of redemption to the world. <clears throat> so the church is a redemptive community, which lives together in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's established by God and characterized by faith, hope, and love, which, fourthly, gives evidence to these through prayer. Martin Luther once wrote, As is the business of tailors to make clothes, and of cobblers to mend shoes, so it is the business of Christians to pray. A mark of true redemption is that we are are living in Christ, that we have been established by God, that we have been characterized by faith, hope, and love, and that gives itself over to prayer. I mean, think about it. It is impossible to live with someone without communicating with them. Even if you're in a stressful relationship and you don't talk at all, you give nonverbal cues, you roll your eyes, you grunt, you know. You make it aware that you don't like their presence. It is impossible to live with someone and not communicate with them. It is unheard of not to thank someone for loving, choosing, and establishing you to give you what you know you do not deserve. We automatically do that. It is unfeasible to have faith, hope, and love without ever conveying them. And in the same way, it's impossible to truly receive redemption through Christ and not pray. How can it be that those who truly recognize their absolute need for grace and their inability to save themselves from their sin, not to continually look to the One who, being rich in mercy, offered up His Son as a substitute for our sin so that we might be reconciled to a personal, eternal relationship with Him. How could we act as though we needed from God was simply a get-out-of-hell-free card? How could we not want time and time again to run to Him who lavishes His grace upon the ones whom He loves? How could we not delight to delight God by praying to Him without ceasing? In his book, Pleasures of God, which I highly recommend, John Piper writes, Prayer is God's delight Because it shows the reaches of our poverty and the riches of His grace. Prayer is that wonderful transaction where the wealth of God's glory is magnified and all the wants of our souls are satisfied. We should want to pray, satisfying our souls, magnifying our God. This is a privilege. This is not a have to. This is a get to. We should want to do it. I've talked a lot about prayer and I haven't pointed to the text too much. So let's do that now. I mean, look at 1 Thessalonians starting in in chapter 1 there. Paul cannot help but pray. Okay? In verse 1, he says that prayer, um, he prays to God that God would grant the Thessalonians grace and peace. In verse 2, he says He he says that he gives thanks to God for them always, constantly mentioning them in his prayers. In verse 3, he remembers before God their faith, love, and hope. Flip on over to chapter 2, verse 13. He he thanks God constantly that they have received the word of God. Flip on over to chapter 3, verse 9 through 10. He expresses his gratitude for the joy he feels for them. Praying earnestly, night and day, that he might be able to see them and to build them up. Chapter 3, verses 11-13, through 13, Paul prays for the opportunity to be with them. He prays for the increase of their faith and that their love might abound from one another so that God might make them holy. In chapter 5, verse 23, he prays that God will sanctify them completely and conveys his confidence that God will indeed do it. And then in 5.28, he closes by praying that God would give them more and more grace. But it's not as though this were solely the privilege and the responsibility of him as an apostle. Paul also calls them to pray as well. In chapter 5, verse 17, a very familiar passage, he says, Pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. He says it's God's will that those who are part of a redemptive community of Christ to pray continually to give thanks always regardless of their situation because that is God's desire for you. And in 5:25 Paul asks the church of the Thessalonians to pray for him and for his companions. Pray for those who are laborers of the harvest who preach the good news of Jesus Christ. Those who have been redeemed, those who live in Christ, who have been established by God, who are characterized by faith, by love, and by hope, will give evidence to these through prayer. This is God's will for us. You know, as I look around Redeemer, I just have to praise God for all the evidence of His grace that I see around us. We moved up here a year ago, and we started out with community groups and and grew from there, and I can't even count the number of, of, of clear demonstrations that God is at work in you and through you. It's been amazing. I mean, I think about Caleb and Kelly moving up here, working two jobs, so that He could be a church planting intern and our our worship leader to get that up and off the ground. I mean, I look at Joe, and Joe's getting ready to go to India with us, right? Joe comes to me and he says, hey, you know what? I'm raising support, but I'm raising support for Redeemer. I'm not raising support so that I can go to India. Instead, I'm going to sell some of my stuff so that I can go. Because I feel like raising support for the church is more important. It's amazing. There's Phil and Polly Hoing, who invite regularly people to community groups. Phil is, is talking with this Brazilian guy at work, and he gave him Bibles, and the guy's learning, he's growing. I mean, there's so many examples of this, even in this small congregation around us, which I just praise God for. I thank Him for it. It's tremendous. But I I, I have a holy discontentment, and I honestly believe it's holy. I want God's grace to abound to us more and more and more. <clears throat> and I think this happens best through prayer. If we want to see that happen, let's pray together. And this is something that we all can do. No matter where you are, what stage you are in life, you can be a part of prayer. Do you realize that? If you have received the Spirit of Christ and God has clearly called you to invest yourself in finding your delight, your satisfaction in Him and making His name glorified, it's not a matter of eloquence. It's not a matter of, of being just unbelievably spiritually endowed in the gift of prayer. We all are called to do it. We all get to do it. We all love to do it. We all should love to do it, I should say. And so I would encourage you to think about how you can do that. Um, as you know, the last couple of weeks we've been talking about sort of the upgrade in our prayer ministry. Uh, I had really been praying that God would provide a leader from among you all to step up and to provide leadership for this ministry that I had desperately wanted it to be an intimate part of our church. I mean, we built it into our strategy. It's one of the P's, one of the six P's which you'll come to know Before too long. Um, And so Keith Sparrow has offered to do that. And I'm actually going to invite Keith up. And he's going to talk a little bit about our vision for prayer ministry. And some of the things that we're going to be doing uh, in the near future. And I encourage you guys to think deeply about how you might involve yourselves in that. And then after he's done, I'm going to direct us in a, a brief time of just small group prayer. So Keith, come on up.
1: Sorry about the microphone. Chet asked me to use it because we're recording the, the the message today, so I don't think I need it, but as we're recording it, we got to go. My name is Keith Sparrow. Um, I know most of you, but not all of you, so good morning. Thank you for coming to Redeemer. Glad to have you. Um, Chet and Jim, one of our other elders, asked me to be in kind of the lead person on our prayer ministry, and as Chet shared, prayer is one of our six strategies for building redemptive communities of gospel centered people and as jim has shared in the last couple of weeks um, you know we've been called to pray for many things one of the things we've been called to pray for is called the lord asked us to pray that God would raise up laborers for the harvest field and one of the things that jim shared that a number of people are doing is that is luke 10:2 so jim has set an alarm clock on his phone so every day at 10:02 a.m. His phone, phone alarm goes off and he prays that the Lord would lift up laborers for the harvest. And the ironic thing in that is that we're praying that God would raise up laborers, but also at the same time we're praying for ourselves because we're the laborers God's using for the harvest field. So that's one way we're starting to focus on prayer intentionally. Um, with our prayer ministry, we have a vision for what we'd like to see it be. Charles Spurgeon in guiding a group of people through his church says, here we come to the furnace room. And the people are like, why is he showing us a room with a bunch of boilers? Why is he bringing us in the dirtiest room in the church? And he opens up the door and there's there's a group of his church members praying. He goes, this is where the furnace, this is where the heat, the passion, the energy comes from for the church. And that's what we want to see at Redeemer. We want to see Hearts that are so passionate for God, that 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 heat, that passion flows out in our lives, and we're going to do that in a number of different ways. And we're bringing a lot of this the prayer ministry online. The first thing we do is every Sunday morning at nine twenty-five, we come together at the back of the room here, and we come together as a group and we pray. And everyone is invited to that. You can bring your prayer requests. We pray for the service. We pray for one another for the for the we, we. Give praise to God for the great things He's doing. We pray to God for the for the difficulties or the challenges or the uh, the questions of what the future has to hold. Another thing we're starting to do is we're having intentional times of 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 uh, prayer through a prayer newsletter in our community groups. And also, starting next week, we're going to have a prayer journal in the back of the room, in which you just put down your your prayer request in your name. And what we're going to do is we're going to send out a newsletter on Thursdays sharing what the prayer requests are that our, that our gospel community has so we can pray for one another throughout the week. Another way we're going to be doing this, and this is going to be happening on the first Sunday in May, we're going to be having a prayer walk in Tolono. Um, Phil and Polly aren't with us today, but Phil and Polly are two of our members that Chet mentioned who are in Tolono who live down there. And we want to make sure that we are praying and we are we are giving deserted effort to prayer in the communities our people live in. Whether that's Tolono, Champaign, Campus, Urbana, wherever that may be, Mohammed, Savoy, we want to make sure we're there, praying that God will use us to reach those communities. So the first Sunday of May, we're still working on the time, I believe it's going to be about approximately 4 o'clock, we're going to come together, we're going to meet at the park in Tolono, we're going to take a prayer walk across areas of the town, come back and have hot dogs. It's gonna be a great time of both uh, prayer and community. Also in the future over the summer we're looking to set up a prayer a uh, prayer retreat for a day in which we'll have times of uh, personal prayer time, We'll have times of community prayer time, but also times of teaching and prayer as we focus on this. It's our strategy. To, to grow the gospel, to build redemptive communities, but it's our call of God. And I want to invite you all to be a part of this as we come to pray together as Redeemer. Thank you. So what I'd
0: like to do right now is, is something that maybe we don't do in a lot of churches, but hey, we're a different church and, and we're small and we can do it, so this is great. But I'd like for us to gather into small groups and, and just spend a few minutes praying together. Um, would you mind, Joe, putting up the, the points to the sermon? There we go. And basically, uh, I'd like for us to pray along these lines. Pray that we would recognize that we live together in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, that, that though, um, though we're here in Champaign right now, that we are ever-present with Christ, that we might know that truly, intimately within our being, and that our desires would be for Christ, who is in heaven. Pray that we recognize that we're established by God, that God is the source of our redemption and the source of our community, and just thank Him for that. Just give Him praise for that. Um, Third, pray that we might be characterized by faith, hope, and love. This is our our supplication. This is what we want to see, that our lives might be transformed so that our love, our faith, our hope might truly be outgoing and truly might be productive. And that we would just be a praying church. So if you don't mind, splitting up into
1: groups, and uh, let's pray for a while.